there's this understanding that incentives matter, right? And yes, there are nice people and there are not nice people, but still in the end, on aggregate, it's the incentives that matter. I'm Rudy Dogum, and this is Wholesome Crypto. Here, I speak with crypto experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs to find out what personally led them to the path of cryptocurrency. Today's guest is Mentor, founder and creator of The Onion DAO, which is adding incentive layers to public goods. They reward the support of underfunded public goods with co-ops because good behavior deserves to be rewarded. With their first initiatives being Tor Exit Nodes, which they currently run over 2% of all exit nodes. Welcome, Mentor, to the Wholesome Crypto Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Rudy. Of course. Um, yeah, you're working on a really interesting project that's uh, a public good, the Onion DAO. Uh, I'm excited to dive deep into that. But we know that you're a developer or who was originally a biologist turning into a programmer. So I want to definitely learn more about your story and how you transitioned over before, like, before you even heard about crypto. So give me a little rundown of who Mentor was before ever hearing about crypto. <laughs> before crypto happened. <laughs> um, yeah, so like you said, the, the onion dot thing is like the proximal reason that we're, we're talking today. So just for people who don't know what they're tuning into, you can earn follow-ups by doing good things. Mm -hmm. But we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, yeah, no, pre-crypto. Pre um, so I, I did my, my undergraduate in the south of the Netherlands. I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, so if you hear a slightly odd accent, that's where, <laughs> where that comes from. It's a cool accent. Um, uh, thank you. Well, so the, the stereotypically Dutch accent is actually horrible, but very easy to recognize once you've, uh, once you've spotted it. Yeah. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm happy I don't have a very strong, uh, strong version. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I studied in the, in the south of the Netherlands in, in, in Maastricht, uh, which is basically just you know, France pretending to be the Netherlands. Um, I'm going to offend some people. Uh, but yes, I, I focused mostly on biology there. Um, did a little more arts and science type program. So that, that left a lot of freedom to um, to choose. And for me, yeah, I, I like too many things. I know uh, that and, feeling. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you you want to build things. You want to know things. You want to find out things. Yep. That, that lends itself to that kind of a study where you just, you know, pick and choose mm -hmm. different subjects and go very broad. Um, one of the things I run into with biology is I, I, I love it, specifically the the biochemical type stuff, the systems, the complexity. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, but I really don't like being in a lab. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, I, <laughs> you appreciate the knowledge, you appreciate the work and the and understanding of the whole entire, you know, the whole uh, space. But yeah, being in a lab is... It's a challenge in itself. Yeah, it's fun for a day or two. Yeah, uh, at least for me. You know, I'm sure there's people who really enjoy it and who uh, who are horrified by the idea of doing what I do uh, on a daily basis. Now, I mean, I'm but uh, yeah, programming is not easy either. I'm horrified of that. I can only do so much work on my own. But so yeah, it's, it's actually funny that you say that. So I, because I never studied um, computer science directly, I, I took some classes in this context. So I did mm -hmm. some. Some programming, some machine learning type stuff, but but never in in like a full degree type type setting. Gotcha. Uh, and it was always a hobby on the side. And I always thought I was going to be like, and I was never going to be a programmer. Mm. Uh, I started with with websites, but you know that's not really programming. Um, but the reference point I always had was my friend Tom. So Tom, if you're listening to this, uh, I love you very much. <laughs> Looking forward to our next VR session. Uh, but he's a friend from high school, and he's one of those like 
astrophysics and and quantum oh. physics. Literally did his PhD in quantum quantum mechanics wow. and quantum physics. And I, I don't even know how to how to distinguish those two. <laughs> but he happened to be a programmer. So by the time we were like 16, 17, I was playing games and he was writing the hacks for the games. Um, wow. And he is what I always think of when I think programmer. Um, but he's in such a separate league that I always have to have this internal self-talk of like, I'm not a programmer and I could never be one because I could never be like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then over time, you, you start building stuff. You start noticing that you, that you like it yeah. and that maybe you don't need to be like a top-tier wizard to get started. And it's good to have a top-tier wizard as a friend because you learn so much from the people you're, you surround yourself with. So it's, you know, yeah. it's a great. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so, so over time, I started doing this more and more professionally. And as I entered the, the job market uh, back then, I noticed people would pay me much more for programming mm -hmm. than biology. And it was equally fun. So that's that's how that started. <laughs> so were you always into tech growing up as a kid? Was that kind of like always there interesting? Like I was always interesting for you or did you like... Um, 90s kid. I okay. mean... <laughs> uh, you, you you probably remember the feeling of, of dialing someone's phone and hearing like the da -da 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 yeah. sounds uh, <laughs> because you know they're on the internet which means they're unreachable mm -hmm. um so that that's the context in which i grew up the coolest thing i ever did when i was 13 was i managed to transfer a file from one computer to the other through the local network Ooh, lan <laughs> i know because there was no infrastructure for that at least mm -hmm. i didn't know about it um, so yeah, it, it was always a fascination, but I was always in over my head and breaking things and then having to fix them because I can't afford to that's, buy a new one. That's exactly how I learned too. I'm like, well, I broke this thing, so I have to take it apart and fix it or else I'm just not going to have one anymore. So yeah, <laughs> I had yeah. to learn. That's the best way. Well, that's a good learning curve. Yeah, it's the best way, I think. Uh, so yeah, you, you finished uh, studying biology, you were, you were working, and then you're also dabbling with programming and coding, learning kind of like both at the same time what when did you first hear about bitcoin what was the time this that is came to you actually during my my studying biology i i always so at this point i still thought i was going to be a biologist and i was going to work in a lab uh, and then i participated in this entrepreneurship type program that you know like in, in this kind of student environment there's events going on all the time and i found a flyer that said three-day startup build build a startup and this sounded very nice and glamorous and exciting mm -hmm. uh, so i applied for that spent a weekend there and sort of through that got into the local like group of entrepreneurial people mm -hmm. and that's like a whole network onto itself yeah and i didn't feel like i was supposed to be there or belonged there but they were great people so i sort of you know spent time there um then one of them invited me to come to a conference in new york um which i could definitely not afford so in the family mailing list i asked everyone can you please help me pay for this this conference in in, in new york that's a real entrepreneurial and story man that's like I, exactly uh, how you i exchanged do it. massages websites things it was like <laughs> anything i can do just any money um because that means the, the 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 context difference between the u.s and europe my study was all like paid for mm -hmm. and we, you do get a loan from the government if you need like anything, but you, we're not used to spending a lot of money on education. So the idea of buying a plane ticket and then going to a conference was completely outrageous. Uh, but at that conference, I was in a breakout session and this whole thing was a, a weird experience for me, but I was sitting next to a guy wearing a superhero tie who was very excitable and this man was Tim Draper. And Tim Draper was incredibly into Bitcoin then 
but this was like this is pre 2013. This is like like Early Bitcoin on. was was double digits, um, and I didn't know who he was. So he he is was um, like one of the the big venture capital people in Silicon Valley, and this is a world that was not known to me. Like yeah. Silicon Valley to the guy studying in the south of the Netherlands is a thing you might read in the news at some point. Um, he was running a summer program and he was trying to convince all these young people to come to his summer program. Um, I'm not sure if I should still tell this story, but <laughs> so the breakout session was about 3D printing. We were trying to figure out, you know, what is a cool use case for 3D printing. We were being all young revolutionaries disrupting things and stuff. Um, and he, no blushings, like, yeah, I think 3D printed sex toys are, are the way to go. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> It's probably. Well, I mean, happening. we were all. I think he was just messing with us, trying to make it, because the rest, I think, knew who he, who he was. So he was just pushing our buttons and making yeah. us feel awkward. It's one of those um, things, like it's let's make him feel awkward with a dose of reality. It's like this probably will happen, but no one wants to talk about it. Yeah, it it was it was an experience. <laughs> but anyway, so I ended up going to that summer program there. That was like the Silicon Valley vibe, and the only thing anyone was talking about was Bitcoin. Whereas, you know, this oh. is the time where you guys already had like Tinder and stuff and, and we hadn't realized that existed yet. Uh, so Europe <laughs> was a couple, a couple months or years behind. Wow. Well, I mean, you had uh, Bang With Friends, which turned into Hang With Friends, which was then superseded by Tinder, I think. <laughs> I didn't even know those existed. I was probably like a college girl or whatever, so it didn't matter. Uh, well, I mean, I, I've been in a relationship before then, so I'm afraid I don't even know what it's like. But yeah, so that's that's the start of my crypto. Nice. So then, but did it make sense to you? So Tim Draper was talking about it. Your uh, other colleagues at that at that time were talking about it. So was it like a light bulb coming on top of your head that it all makes sense? Bitcoin's the future, or were you like, this is just weird tech that I'm not going to even. I'm not ready well, to I mean, at that point, I, I go there. I'm in like around San Francisco. Everyone is excited about this thing. Mm -hmm. I just think it's a cool technological construct. I'm not even at that point uh, comfortable enough calling myself a programmer, but I sort of understand the tech behind it. Plus the tinkerer, like what we talked about, the, the whole, you know, the, the 90s kid trying to put the wires together. Mm -hmm. That part of me really liked the people trying to, you know, build Bitcoin miners and, and transfer money back and forth. And the complete mayhem and chaos is something I really enjoy. So that yeah. was happening all then. So did I see the future potential? And, you know, I, I didn't even know what monetary system meant at that point. That's why I love um, Bitcoin. It teaches so much about like law and uh, monetary systems and social systems. It kind of like forces you to understand how money moves and how the government uses money. And I'm very appreciative for that because school never taught me that. It told me very little, mm, but likewise. like reading into Bitcoin and like following all those forms and like following people on like online who are experts in monetary systems and kind of relaying it back to Bitcoin. I'm like, oh, there's so much I didn't know. Thank you so much, crypto. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, you especially back then when it was less less mainstream, you felt like a conspiracy theorist the whole time. Yeah. Like trying to convince someone that commercial money and public money are two different things, mm -hmm. you know, that the government's money and the banks' money aren't the same. Like no, no one, I mean, to be fair, uh, my, my like sources could probably do with <laughs> some more uh, legitimation at that point, if that's even a word. Um, but yeah, it, it just felt like 
wild west and there was no documentation about anything mm-hmm. and then so this kind of yeah i mean i feel the same way too it was like it got me excited because of this the disruption factor of, of bitcoin and what it's doing and kind of like oh are, are we is this gonna happen is this gonna go somewhere oh no the price dropped again the price went up again so it's gonna happen it's not gonna really happen like the, the roller coaster ride is a lot of fun and the excitement around it is awesome and the tech building around it was equally as exciting yeah yeah having skin in the game is underrated mm-hmm. so then uh what, what came out of this uh program did you join the summer program um yes i did it was like a couple months um it, it also took more more bargaining uh mm-hmm. because apparently it is normal for a summer program in the u.s to cost a couple thousand dollars yeah um everything that's that's money i didn't have um or or had access to uh, i mean my, my mom's uh, i mean don't get me wrong like i was perfectly middle class in the netherlands like i was perfectly taken care of provided i wasn't trying to go to the u.s and do the u.s thing mm-hmm. um so that involved uh, convincing them to give me a rebate and basically doing the same thing as with my family, being like, well, I can do this, I can do that, I can, you know, I'll, I'll do stuff. Uh, and to their credit, they were like, <laughs> basically, they drew the conclusion you, you said before as well. So like, that sounds entrepreneurial. I, I guess we could do it with some, some European exotic uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome you got support too. I mean, I think it is a smart way is to work for your cash, like really value it if you were just you know that's like for me it's whenever i put my own money into a project for some reason i want to work more at it mm. being i get paid as from a job to work and i'm like uh but i'm being paid yeah. like why am i why am i arguing why am i complaining why would i feel better if i paid money to do something it doesn't make any sense but it's like that passion that drive yeah brain's gonna brain mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah, but then so basically that all snowballed into, um, you know, learning about about Bitcoin. Then Ethereum sort of came onto the block. Yep. Uh, you know, I remember we did the shadiest things in the beginning, like not illegal shady, but more before ICOs were a thing. People were already trading Bitcoin stocks on something called Havelock Investments, oh. which was some like stock trading thing specializing purely in Bitcoin shares, where you could deposit Bitcoin. And it was mostly miners and like you could deposit Bitcoin and buy like stocks in these miners. I mean, they were somewhere in Panama and it was all like, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was quite dodgy. Um, <laughs> but you know, me, me and my, my brothers and some friends, we were really, really into this. We knew nothing and we thought we knew everything. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the number went up, the number of Bitcoins went up. And then one day we woke up and we lost 90% because the one miner we invested in went bust. Oh. Um, and I mean, you know, these weren't like huge to them, to, to us then it was huge numbers. Uh, but you know, now it's maybe a month's like salary, yeah, which is, you know, not insignificant, but not the end of the world. Uh, but anyway, wake up 90% gone. And in our state of depression is when Vitalik, um, came out with his Ethereum idea. And we basically in a, like, whatever we, we threw in half of our Bitcoin, um, into that. And, and that's how how sort of I rolled into into Ethereum. Nice. Um, but again, at this point, it wasn't even a, a programmer yet. And I mean, it all sounds uh, nice and glamorous and like I should be living on a yacht now, but if only you had the money in the past, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, I was, I was in crypto early 2013 too. I'm like, everyone's like, oh, so you have a lot of money? I'm like, no, I just, I didn't have any money back then to put into it, but <laughs> I was watching it. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, all right, now you saw Ethereum. Now, now you're kind of starting to feel the goosebumps of 
what can happen with this tech? Yeah, so I, I kept crypto and my professional life separate for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Kind of like uh, I was listening to your episode with Colfax and basically this this idea of like maybe don't mix your passion and your profession too much because it might suck the joy out of, out of one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was noticing I was doing so much like open source work and contributions and stuff that basically I was working on crypto the whole time. Uh, and enjoying it and being perfectly happy. And my job was getting in the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that. Stuff. Um, and then coincidentally, I was, so I'm, I'm a very big fan of the, the Rocket Pool uh, project. Yeah. In, in the, um, the Discord there was where I spent the whole of, of the half of Corona, Corona lockdown, basically. Um, and in there, there was a guy called, uh, or whose wallet was called vaulthalter.e. Um, that's Patricio, the founder of POA. Mm. And we got chatting about something completely different. I was trying to pitch him an idea of something to build. And his conclusion was, um, sounds super cool. Hope you do it, but I'm too busy for this. Also, you could just come work for POA. Um, <laughs> and that was sort of an in to work at a, a Web3 company. And I've been with POA since last October. So now I no longer keep my my crypto interest in my work separate. Wow, that's awesome. And that's like a huge achievement on its own because I remember, you know, for years I'm like, oh, I want to work in crypto full time. But at, at a certain time, it was either you're a developer, a financial investor that can afford developers or a really, really <laughs> good marketer or hmm. like a community manager, but you weren't paid enough to like, you know, live a life, oh. uh, especially in the U.S. It's just, you can't do it. So it was really hard to choose between like, what do I want to do? I need a normal job to pay for my bills, but I also love crypto with a passion. Like, how do I get through it? But I think like finally now it's becoming where there's plenty of roles in the crypto space and actually anyone can finally get a job that's paying a livable wage. Mm. And that's, that's like really exciting for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a... I wonder uh, 10 years from now whether we're going to look back and, you know, basically you and me are working on the pet.com like type <laughs> companies in, in, in retrospect. Maybe. But it's a lot of fun. I always, I think it's underrated that during the, like the 2000s dot uh, com boom, like, yeah, in retrospect, now you look back, it's like, oh, all those companies uh, have failed and exploded, whatever. But how much fun must it have been to work at pets.com? I th- um, even if eventually they fail. Yeah, it absolutely is. It just, the... Yeah, that people make, you know, the environment of your coworkers and your peers just getting excited over something is just what I'm really craving. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. And uh, are you working full-time now in, in Web3? Uh, no, not Web3, but in a financial infrastructure company that does, like, uh. helps exchanges onboard onto the crypto space, like, providing mm. exchange for crypto, USD and KYC, stuff like that. So it's nice. So you're seeing the nitty gritty behind the scenes. Yeah, I kind of like it. <laughs> the duct tape and the paper clips. It's interesting stuff. Whatever, as long as you get my brain going, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, now that you're in the po-op space, working there, you know, I'm also a big fan of Rocket Pool. I really do enjoy their uh, community and what they're doing. How did you start feeling out that you want to build a project on your own, which is the Onion DAO and how that start off and how's it going? Well, so my problem is never uh, getting myself to start a new thing. My bigger problem is trying to make sure I don't start too many things at the same time. Yeah. 
Um, you, you, I have like four projects that I'm working on. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta stop picking up projects and stick with this. Uh, well, I think Tim Ferriss at some point, I mean, he was talking about books, but basically what he was saying is, uh, it should be more painful not to, uh, or it should be more painful not to, in this case, write a book than to write a book if you're gonna. And mm-hmm. that's sort of how I, I, I take on projects. It's like, if it's more painful, like if it's so stuck in your head. And it keeps coming back, and it's just more painful to suffer the fact of not doing it. Uh, then that's enough of a signal to to do it. That's a good indicator. Um, but so what happened with the the Onion DAO was this was prompted by the whole Ukraine situation now, which I hope people listening in a year or two will have completely forgotten because we will fix everything in a you know utopic kind of way, uh, though I, I don't expect it. Um, but so one of the, the the questions you sort of ask yourself is what can you do? And particularly, what can you do that maybe other people cannot? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had this kind of a similar thought before uh, when I was traveling in uh, with my now wife in uh, Rwanda. We went to the genocide museum there, um, and one of the, th- the the patterns you see in conflicts um, is that the open flow of open and secure flow of information um, generally is a good that can prevent a lot of suffering. So, in the case of the the, the Rwandan thing. Um, I don't remember the specifics and I should probably look them up. Um, but there was one general that could have basically sent a signal to uh, his, uh, I think it was to the UN higher ups being like, you know, this, this, this place here, it's going to, it's going to blow and it's going to be terrible. We should step in now. But he felt like he couldn't uh, because this was, he was wor- like worried it would tie back to him. Wow. And of course, being a programmer, the first thing you think is like, but that's what encryption technology is for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to hammer everything's a nail, this, this wouldn't solve everything. Um, but then a, a similar thought sort of popped up with this whole Ukraine-Russia thing, where uh, if you are Russian and you cannot access Western media because that is blocked behind a, a censorship wall, um, that means that you don't, you perhaps don't even know what's what's going on. Uh, and one of the ways in which you could circumvent that is the Tor network and the Tor browser that they developed, which is beautiful and amazing. It's an, an anonymity system, so when you open the browser. Uh, their Tor browser, when you go and press something into the URL, uh, you are guaranteed that it's going through an anonymizing network and you don't need to know how it works. You don't need to pay for it, like uh, like with a VPN. Um, the analogy I like to use is a VPN is kind of like you're an awkward teenager, you want to buy condoms, but you don't want to go to the store yourself. <laughs> so you ask a friend who you know will be your face to go to the store on your behalf. So the store will never know, and you don't have to go through the awkwardness, right? Yeah. Um, however, there's one friend, one point you could pressure, and if that friend is fulfilling the, the privacy service for all the friends, then you know if the government decides we're going to crack down on people buying condoms, they can go to your friend and be like, "Tell me everyone who you've, uh, you know, provided this service to," mm-hmm. and that's an analogy to VPNs. So when you use a VPN, you're basically asking another server to, on your behalf, open some resource. But you could lean on this VPN provider, um, or as a government, you could say we're just going to block access to that, to that VPN, to that person, uh, which would make it obsolete. What the Tor network does is it just has a whole crowd of volunteers. One layer are entry nodes, so basically it's people you can go to and say like, "Hey, uh, I want to buy condoms and I'm too awkward to do it." This person will go to the next person. We'll go to the next person, we'll go to the next, we'll go to the next, we'll go to the next. And way at the end of the chain, there is someone in the Tor network, this is a Tor exit node, 
who will actually go to the store and then pass whatever you wanted all the way back through the chain, uh, which is, as you might imagine, very uh, secure. Um, problem being, there's not a lot of people willing to, for free, because this is all volunteers, run an exit node because it feels very risky because on behalf of all these people you don't know, you're going to do all sorts of stuff, most of which will be legal, but some of which will be illegal. And that feels like a liability. But that's the internet and for you too, you know, like as IS, ISP provider, as internet service provider, you have illegal things going on. Like it's just, you can't, you can't control the entire world, but you just hope that there is mostly good coming out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, so you can do sort of aggregate analysis and look at, you know, how much of the network appears to be legal or illegal. Mm -hmm. And it is just like with crypto usage, the vast majority is legal usage. But just people, in the case of Tor, who maybe don't want people to know they're browsing a certain thing. Or, you know, I guess, you know, this could fall under a definition of illegal, but a dissident trying to open a foreign news website. Um, you know, th these are not terrorists. This is not child porn. This is not all the things that we hate. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one thing that the Tor community points out themselves is the true criminals have better networks than Tor. <laughs> like they have their <laughs> own botnets. They, you know, the, 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 the real baddies, they, they're not relying on this thing. Uh, and even the low-level baddies, uh, one example I, I use often when, when describing this or VPNs is um, when you think of terrorist attacks, in retrospect, when you analyze those kind of situations, nine out of the 10 times, they're using SMS messages. They're not using some super encrypted satellite phone wow. or even a VPN, like maybe sometimes, but most of the time it's just texting back and forth. That's um, wild. That's so wild. I, I, I know, but then <laughs> so um, thinking about this anonymity thing, usually you're protecting people who need it. But yeah. anyway, so the, the problem is there's not enough people running these exit nodes. Because it feels risky, even if, uh, and this is the case in most places, it is perfectly legal to run one. But, you know, it feels like a hassle. You're going to pay for it. Yeah. And what do you get? Yeah, fuzzy happy feelings. Yeah. And, and the fuzzy happy feelings are the people who are, who are running them right now. Um, and this is one thing I kind of have a problem with, with the internet and the world as a whole. Um, we have a lot of public goods, where a public good is something that we all use. But when you use it at the point of usage, you don't pay for it. You know, when you go outside and you breathe the air, uh, you don't pay for that. We mm -hmm. just have rules about how many chemicals people are supposed to put in the air and for the rest it's shared. <laughs> uh, same with roads in most countries. The roads are there and we don't care if you are someone who will use the roads once a month or you're a company that's going to send trucks upon trucks upon trucks. Depends if you live I mean, in New Jersey, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> in Jersey, you get taxed yeah, so on the roads <laughs> like crazy. Uh, there you go. Well, I mean, so the, 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 the realities can be more, can be more messy. Mm -hmm. But the idea of a public good is um, we all use it and no one in particular pays for it. We just sort of pay for it. But what happens online is there are public goods that are incredibly important. Uh, Tor being an example, Wikipedia being an yeah. example but also like uh, ssl being an example like the the security of your browser the https that you use when you when you visit your bank that's an open source team who's paying for that well that's a funny thing well it's some donations yeah and you know there's some some companies feeling good about themselves because they donated to to open ssl but there's a whole like there's that really funny xkcd comic where they sort of like show the pyramid of software and then like on the the left bottom corner of the pillar 
It's like that one time library maintained by this guy in Arkansas who does it on the weekends. Um, <laughs> that is how the interest, like the internet works. And there's no proper funding for these public goods. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tor is no different. Um, and, and the problematic thing, I think, is we have this weird societal inclination to want to not pay people for good things. It's like, if you want to be a teacher or a nurse, no, no, you do that because you care. You yes. shouldn't want to be paid for that. That's so silly. But then if you're going to be an investment banker, it's like, <laughs> no, you don't need to care. And you can take as much money as you want. And we're not going to complain if you ask for more because, you know, that's just what you do, I guess. It's so silly. You're um, absolutely right. <laughs> but then combine those two things. And we are basically incredibly lucky that there are lunatics like us out there who spend their time building stuff for free because we like it. That's the same thing to do for me. That's not a lunatic thing. That's like what we all should be doing. Everyone's spending their time doing things they don't want to do and hoping or wishing they can do something like this. But like you said, you don't get reimbursed for doing good things other than feeling good. Yeah. Well, I mean, so this is basically the idea behind Onion Dao. Um, you know, if, if you want a dog to do good things, you give him a cookie when he does a good thing. Same with the kid. If he does a good thing, you give him a sticker in school or something because mm -hmm. stickers make kids happy, I guess. Um, I like them. <laughs> and wh why wouldn't you do the same thing for public goods? Yeah. So the idea behind Onion Dao is if you do, so our first public good is Tor, Tor exit nodes. You run a Tor exit node, you get a POA. POA being an NFT that certifies you did something or were somewhere. Um, that is one reward. It's basically a non-fungible reputation. And some people care about that because some people do things because they feel good. Some people because they give reputation uh, and some people for the money. Yeah. So step one, we can airdrop reputation basically and allow people to show off. And I'm perfectly fine with people show. I don't mind people being like, look at how good I am because I did things. And I, I really don't care if you do good things. Exactly. You be a dick about it. Yeah. Is this PG-13? Did I just like, leave me out? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Uncensored. Yeah, no. So, so I'm, um, yeah, I, 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 I was talking to my brothers about this recently. You're familiar with like Martin Shkreli, the most hated man on the internet, the 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 young hedge fundy guy who bought some drugs and then hyped up the price just yeah. because he could. Yeah. So he has a bunch of money, right? I'm pretty sure that people would prefer him being the rich ass that he is over him giving away half his wealth and then playing goody two shoes on the internet. And I'm honestly like, look, if he can give away a whole bunch of money, he can be as much of an idiot as he wants. I, I really don't care. What I care about is whether good things happen in the world. Uh, and if mm -hmm. that's what it requires, I'm okay with that. Um, and I mean, this is an extreme example, of course. You know, mo Most people who want to do good things and do them aren't complete. Uh, I'll stop swearing so much, but you get what I'm Go trying to it. say. <laughs> um, but yeah, it makes sense because I, I get, it's like those videos you see online of people like, taking a video of helping, I guess, someone in need or someone who's homeless. I'm like, the comments are half and half. The comments are like, oh, sweet, you did something nice. And the other comments are like, oh, why are you recording this? Like, why can't you just mm -hmm. do it as a good person, not try to get likes and comments and fame and make money off uh, just recording yourself, taking care of someone in need? Like, it's a back and forth battle. And I see both points, but you're right. I mean, like, as long as something good is happening, and hopefully someone else that watched that video is more willing to do the same thing and help someone else out in need. And if enough people do that, then everyone's helping everyone out and taking credit by recording themselves doing it. And it's kind of working, at least. 
Yeah, well, I think one before. of the interesting things in the crypto community is there's this understanding that incentives matter, mm -hmm. right? And yes, there are nice people and there are not nice people, but still in the end, on aggregate, it's the incentives that matter. Yep. So what with OnionDAO, the idea is, is we're just going to create incentives for things that we want to have more of. And so step one, airdrop pops for doing good things. But then in the future, I'm perfectly fine creating an airdrop of ERC-20s mm -hmm. proportional to how many pops people have. Because one other problem you run into with um, a system where there are people wanting to support public goods is the structure and mandate of the big players is very limited. Think of it a little bit like in the financial markets. You have on one side the pyramid of uh, how much activity happens. And on the top is, you know, large index fund equity type things. There are very few big indexes. There are more public equities. And like, like that, there are layers and layers that build on each other. The, the public equities mostly exist like they do now because venture capital and other investors are, are seeding younger companies to grow. The layer beyond that, the, the VCs, they're fishing in the pool of the angel investors. And the angel investors are fishing in the pool of the people who did, did pre-seed stuff or self-funded themselves or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole, like an ecological pyramid from biology. You know, for one snake, you need a, like 10 mice. You need 100 grasshoppers and you need like 1,000 kilos of grass. Yep. That's how a system works. Um, but the money is an upside-down pyramid. Most of the money is chasing after the very few things. And there's very few money at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, but that can work. Because in that kind of a pyramid, there are things leaning on each other. You know, everyone's fishing in the previous pool. Yeah. Um, with this kind of public good thing, yes, Microsoft with uh, big amounts of money uh, and, you know, nothing particular about Microsoft, you know, Acme Corp, can only invest in certain bigger things. Um, when you think of the amount of finances available for the different layers, they tend to be at the top. Um, but so the people like a Microsoft, Acme Corp, whatever, um, they don't have the mandate to support a thousand small projects or even individuals. And if you, if you think about open source stuff, you know, it's very nice that people are supporting OpenSSL. Mm -hmm. um, but that random guy supporting the time library, you know, two hours a month, uh, he's just not going to get support. And the pyramid that you could build is basically saying, right, if you do good things, we airdrop you reputation tokens, in this case, props. Uh, that can lead into an ERC-20 allotment. You know, however, the, the tokenomics of that work is something to figure out. What that creates is a liquid pool of tokens you can buy to support a, a wide variety of public good initiatives. And in that way, you get a DAO structure that is kind of like funding uh, through a nonprofit, okay. only on-chain, tokenized, and, and highly liquid. Uh, so that's the experiment that, that the Onion DAO is. And there isn't a, a big master plan. There's a, there's a light paper sort of... Uh, yeah, right, right through it talked about mm -hmm. um there isn't some no there, there's no funding here there's no vc end game there's no uh one tokens for the best projects are like that you know i mean those are the most i think it's very needed what you're doing is very needed because like you said there's a huge issue especially with russia and ukraine how there's misinformation between the two countries if you i, I saw some on like on hacker news there was example footage of TikTok being in Ukraine and being in Russia. And <laughs> so much of the war is blocked out of Russia. The Russian citizens 
think it's just all like, you know, life is normal. There's no issues going on anywhere else. Like life is good. And anyone who is trying to talk about the war is being captured and imprisoned. While in Ukraine, all the TikTok videos of are of people in war. There's like scenes of uh, explosions and like uh, just, you know, a lot of struggle and, and hurt. And the whole point of the internet, the whole point of this future we're building is to have decentralized, open information for the world to see and for the world to democratically prove what is true, what is not true, and what it, and what is good and what is not good. And well, I think one, one, mm-hmm. one mistake that we, as a Western kind of centric uh, group of people, assume is that the nature of the internet is to be open and decentralized and free. Um, and that is, uh, I forget who it was, but you know, there, there was some other, I'm, I'm guessing it was one of your ex-presidents, um, who basically was like, we should, we should let China onto this network because you know, it'll make them more open uh, and it'll force the free flow of information. Um, and we think it is that way because that's the way that we're projecting our cultural identity onto a bunch of wires and computers talking to each other. Mm. But there's nothing inherently open about a bunch of wires, right? True. Unless we build the technologies that make it so, um, of which Tor is is an example. That's true, and you're right. It, you can obviously use the internet however you want. Uh, that's the that is like the terrible thing and beautiful thing about it is its limit is the human creativity, hmm. and we're that's limitless for us. So. <laughs> so being in this industry for a while, working on Onion DAO, I want to know what is your crypto pet peeve? Ooh, what's the definition of a pet peeve? Um, something that kind of irritates you in the industry. Like it's subtle, not necessarily a big deal, but like kind of like someone, oh, I never sleep with socks on. Like who does that? <laughs> but that's a pet peeve. Some people. <laughs> I have that. specific sleep socks. So just, just oh, really? I can't sleep with uh, socks on. <laughs> uh, you just need to get some merino wool socks, my friend. Um, but pet peeve, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, you've also been around for a while. You just know there's, uh, there's a whole segment of the world that believes things about our industry that we thought we settled five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, those are not small things. The things, the things like you know, uh, uh, terrorism is Bitcoin's for terrorism and for criminals type type thing. Yeah, that's a pet wouldn't peeve. necessarily call it a pet peeve. I would say um, it's it's like the quickest way to downplay cryptocurrency without understanding money in general, because money does the same exact thing. Before crypto, there was it always existed. The internet, yeah. phones, all that stuff makes it easier. So, but we're not going to get rid of the internet and phone, are we? So it's just like, yeah, well, so I, I think the thing that we just need to get used to is this is never going away. Similarly to me still having to explain to my non-techie family members things about the internet or getting the printer to work, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's just not going away. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, printers are hell, but I think you get my point. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, now if you weren't say like, if, if crypto didn't come into your life or you just it didn't give you any spark of creativity do you think your life would still be in the development world or would you think maybe oh for for sure so i i became more of a programmer before i 
really you know got into using crypto for anything other than number go up yeah um the, the building of things and i think i i noticed that that instinct in you as well the building of things is just amazing mm-hmm. and the more skill you get the easier it becomes to think of something and then just you know make it yeah um and yeah. what you've made is awesome because i saw on your github that yeah anyone can run an exit node um you laid out the steps pretty clearly you even get given a lot of good vpss to use uh affordable by most i'm sure and you know that's like a lot of for me it's like you know you're one you're one person working on this or do you have a another person helping you yeah no i'm I'm just i mean there's community members starting to contribute you know designs and ideas and i think the full first pull request might be coming in this uh this week that's awesome looking forward to it ruben (laughs) what a good feeling that must be right like like what you're working on is you know I think once you get those a handful of people who are excited about your project, that's like the biggest catalyst you need to just drive it home. Mm. That's super exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah, and seeing the impact. One thing, like I'm, I'm still completely blown away that in the first week or two that we started, we ran one percent of all tour exit nodes, and by now I think we're around two percent of what? all tour exit nodes, which makes no sense to me. But it's great. Was it that limited, the amount of exit nodes? Yep. Yep. I mean, so people, if you want to learn about OnionDAO, you can go to onionDAO.web.app. And if you scroll down to the Tor exit node bit, it shows the the current percentage, which is 1.9% of all nodes. But that's Mm -hmm. only 26 nodes. Wow. Which is not that much. No. So that's how under-supported an essential public good like Tor is. And I hope... Yeah, yeah. They might be talking to each other too, like the people who are using the more traditional method of creating exit nodes. They might be just transferring over to yours, and that'd be awesome. Well, I got the, I got a very random Twitter message from one uh, person who basically asked specifically about this, and I don't know who they are, where they are, or whatever. But they were like, "Yeah, I have a significant amount of these nodes, uh, and I would like to get a pop," which you know I perfectly respect. <laughs> yeah, it's that mission complete, right? Like for that part, but. You did what you're setting out to do. Um, so, yeah, one of my last questions I'd like to ask is, what is your favorite wholesome crypto moment? Something that's got you warm and fuzzy inside uh, being in the crypto industry that you saw or acted in? It's basically just the Rocket Pool Discord. <laughs> wow. It's, a lot uh, of good people the, came out of that. It's. I mean, I, I guess it's a side effect of, you know, this is the biologist in me, but, but you got like you got a population... And what it's selecting for or has been selecting for over the past years is highly technical beta testers. Because mm-hmm. that is basically what was happening until they launched. It was just beta after beta. And in order to participate, you need to know command line, shell, that kind of thing. Um, so it's selected for very patient people who are collaborative and highly technical. Uh, and that's not, you know, the, all of them. Everyone's welcome there. Uh, including people who have no knowledge whatsoever. But because of that pre-selection, you just get a lot of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And I think um, in a weird way, exclusivity is underrated. Um, and not exclusivity in the sense of like, we're only going to let in people who wear blue hoodies. Yeah. Um, but basically, th- we're going to make this attractive to our kind of person because he- this is where we geek out about <laughs> staking and command lines and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and that attracts people 
of a certain enthusiasm and passion. Yeah, and that's so needed, especially in cryptocurrency space because of it is a patient game. It's been, what, since 2009 Bitcoin came out? So it's been like, what, 11? Wait, how many years has that been? I can't even do math right now. <laughs> you want to count COVID as years or not? <laughs> it's like, yeah, like 12, 13 years since then. So it's yeah, pretty insane how how long it's been, but how much has happened in, thir- in, that, in that 13 years. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I love seeing that. I think that's what we need more of in the community industry. And I think what Rocket Pool is also, yeah, what they're doing, what you're doing is, like you said, you're attracting anyone who's interested, willing to learn, willing to work, willing to play the patient game, but, you know, develop something that's needed in our space, that's doing a public good in our space. That's going to be appreciated and definitely thankful for what you're working on well i'm very happy to do it and speaking of uh, anyone who does want to help this is an ongoing thing so you can still just jump on and run a tour exit node costs about five dollars a month for like an average vps i think there's even cheaper ones we currently have two initiatives one is running a tour exit node and the other is helping us figure out which vps providers are cheap and tour friendly both of them get you a POAP. The first one gets you a monthly POAP. Basically, for every month that you run, you get a token. Uh, and the other is a one-time thing. Uh, and while there is no uh, definitive roadmap, the idea is eventually this will qualify for some form of airdrop. So if that is what you care about, which I don't mind at all, then definitely come come join us. Um, like I said, onionDAO.web.app, or if you're of the Web3 type, uh, onionDAO.eth is where our IPFS website is also hosted. And then we welcome everyone who wants to support, no matter why you do. Exactly. And if we all work together on this one, it's going to become a success. So I'll leave all the links in the, in the notes and in the episode. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mentor, for you know, sharing your story. Um, yeah, it's really appreciated. And I'm excited to see Onion Dow become standard. Well, thanks for taking the time. And I, uh, I look forward to seeing you in the Discord. Yes. See you, everyone. <laughs>